Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. This season, we're discussing the history of the Mughal Empire. This is episode 8-14, Akbar and his handlers. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Having taken Kandahar and Kabul, Humayun proceeds to reconquer much of northern India. Humayun dies in 1556 and his son, Akbar, becomes the new Mughal emperor. Akbar goes to war against the Suri dynasty, defeating their three largest factions in 18 months. Despite these successes, Akbar is still a minor and controlled by various handlers. And with that, let's take a look at Akbar's regent, Bairam Khan. Bairam Khan Since Akbar was only 15 years old when he became emperor, he was kind of dominated by his regent, Bairam Khan. A regent is someone who takes the place of the monarch and rules a country or kingdom while the monarch is a minor, absent, or incapacitated. They have the authority to make decisions on behalf of the monarch, and their role is usually temporary until the monarch is old enough to rule, comes back from their absence, or is able to resume their duties because their incapacitation is resolved. Bairam Khan was a very important figure in the Mughal Empire of India who had been loyal to Akbar's father, Humayun, through all his ups and downs. He was a courtier and a general and was the chief advisor and regent to two Mughal emperors, Humayun and Akbar. He was from a noble Turkic family called the Chagatai and played a big role in the beginning of Akbar's reign. Bairam Khan became famous as a warrior and statesman for the Mughals and was known for his military skills and his ability to govern and administer the Mughal Empire. Bairam Khan was extremely loyal to Akbar, but he had a lot of things working against him. First of all, being a powerful regent and close to the emperor always invites jealousy and intrigue. Besides, Akbar's mother, Hamida Bano, and his wet nurse, Maham Anga, didn't really like Bairam Khan. Plus, Bairam Khan was a Shia, and that might have led to some bias against him. He was also kind of arrogant and stubborn, which was good in combat, but not so much during peacetime. And he may have had a patronizing attitude towards Akbar because he had known him since birth and probably still saw him as a little kid. Their relationship took a bad turn when an out-of-control elephant trampled Bairam Khan's tent and almost killed him. Bairam Khan was so angry that he killed the elephant's handler. But here's the thing. The elephant handler was also one of Akbar's personal servants. So Akbar was pretty upset about that. Things got a little better when Akbar offered his cousin to Bairam Khan for marriage, but the damage may have already been done. You know how it is. Once trust is broken, it's hard to get it back. In 1560, Maham Anga and her son, Adam Khan, came up with a plan to get rid of Bairam Khan. They invited Akbar to Delhi to visit his sick mother, leaving Bairam Khan in Agra to take care of the state's affairs. 
Maham Anga and her son Adam Khan convinced Akbar that Bairam Khan was trying to push him aside and that he had to go. It's not clear whether Akbar actually fell for their plot or if he was just tired of Bairam Khan's bossy behavior. When he returned, Akbar told Bairam Khan to go on the Hajj pilgrimage to Mecca. This was a way that the Mughals got rid of someone without killing them. Bairam Khan knew what was happening, but he was loyal and agreed to go into exile. However, Akbar then sent an army to speed him along, which was an insult to Bairam Khan. This was just too much for him, and he revolted against Akbar. But Bairam Khan was quickly arrested and brought before Akbar. When he saw Akbar, he knelt down and started crying. Akbar picked him up and hugged him, and then gave Bairam Khan three choices. Stay at court as a benefactor or dependent of the royal family, accept the governorship of a province, or retire to Mecca. Bairam Khan knew that his career was over, so he chose to retire to Mecca and spend the rest of his life in worship. Akbar sent him off in style. However, in late January 1561, Bairam Khan was attacked and killed in Kambay, Gujarat. The killer was an Afghan who wanted revenge for his father, who had been killed in battle by Bairam Khan. The Petticoat Government With Bairam Khan out of the way, Maham Anga took over and this period became known as the Mughal Petticoat Government. A petticoat is an undergarment worn by women, usually under a dress, and a petticoat government refers to a government run by women. Maham Anga started promoting her son, Adam Khan, who was a brave warrior, but also a cruel person. In February 1561, Adam Khan went on an expedition to the region of Malwa, which covers western Madhya Pradesh and southeastern Rajasthan. Malwa was ruled by a man named Baz Bahadur, who was known more for being a womanizer and a poet than a military man. One of the women in his harem was a famous poet named Rupmati. When Adam Khan attacked the capital city of Sarangpur, Baz Bahadur fled and left his entire harem behind. Adam Khan's men slaughtered most of the men in the city, including Muslim scholars and shuyukh, many of whom surrendered peacefully by coming out with the Quran on their heads. Adam Khan had them executed and their bodies burned, and the women were taken captive. Adam Khan wanted the best ones for himself, especially Rupmati, the poet, but she committed suicide instead. After his victory, Adam Khan kept most of the plunder for himself and only sent a few elephants to Akbar in Agra. When Akbar found out, he rushed to Malwa before Adam Khan's mother could warn him. Adam Khan was shocked to see the emperor suddenly arrive. He apologized and turned over all the plunder to Akbar. Akbar forgave him, but again, the damage was already done. Akbar also secretly kept two of the most beautiful women from the harem for himself. But when his mother found out, she had them secretly executed. 
By 1561, Akbar was 19 years old and starting to outgrow Maham Anga. In November of that year, he appointed a man named Ataga Khan from Kabul to be his chief minister, but Adam Khan didn't agree with this appointment. Six months later, Adam Khan burst into Ataga Khan's public audience and ordered his men to kill him, which they did. Adam Khan then tried to enter the harem, but a eunuch guard locked it from the inside. Just a quick word on eunuchs during the Mughal era. Eunuchs, we don't have to explain what they were, were used in a variety of roles, primarily as servants and administrators in the imperial household. Eunuchs were often trusted with sensitive tasks and positions of power because they were unable to father children and were not seen as a threat to the Mughal throne. Eunuchs were also used as guards, particularly in the harem where the women of the household lived. Eunuchs were often castrated at a young age and trained in the arts of administration and governance. They were also used as entertainers and were known for their singing and dancing skills. But despite their importance and the trust placed in them, eunuchs were often looked down upon and discriminated against in Mughal society. I'm going to read Akbar's reaction as given in the Akbar Nama, his official royal biography. It's kind of long, but gives us insight into the type of character Akbar was. In short, his majesty was awakened by the dreadful clamor and called for an explanation. As none of the women knew of the affair, he put his head outside of the palace wall and asked what was the matter. Rafiq, who was one of the old servants of the palace, mentioned the facts. When his majesty heard the horrible tale, he was amazed and made further inquiries. Rafiq pointed to the blood-stained corpse and repeated his statement. When his majesty, the Shahinshah, saw the body, he became nobly indignant. When he had passed over one side of the terrace and had turned into another, he saw that villain, and there issued from his holy lips the words, Son of a fool, why have you killed our Ataga? His majesty withdrew his hand therefrom and struck him such a blow on the face with his fist that the wicked monster turned a somersault and fell down and insensible. Farhad Khan and Sangram Husnak had the good fortune to be present. His Majesty angrily said to them, Why do you stand gaping there? Bind this madman! They too and a number of others obeyed the order and bound him. The righteous order was given that the fellow who had outstepped his place should be flung headlong from the top of the terrace. Those short-sighted men out of consideration for Adam, then which in consideration would have been a thousand times better, did not throw him down properly, and he remained half alive. The order was given to bring him up again, and this time they dragged him up by the hair, and in accordance with orders, flung him headlong so that his neck was broken and his brains destroyed. In this way, that bloodthirsty profligate underwent retribution for his actions. In time, His Majesty retired into the harem after performing such an act of justice. Maham Anga, who was lying in bed ill in her own house, came to hear that Adam Khan committed so great an act of violence and had been put to death. She, by virtue of her wisdom, preserved her respect for His Majesty and did not complain or lament but she became inwardly wounded by a thousand fatal blows.
the color left her face, and she wanted to visit the body. His Majesty the Shahanshah, in regard to her long service, spoke comforting words to her and consoled her somewhat, but did not allow her to go there in order that she might not behold her son in such a condition. The wise mourner went and expressed her resignation and submitted to the divine decree. Then she came to her own house and indulged in lamenting and weeping. The illness from which she had suffered grew worse, and the pillars of health were shaken. Forty days after this occurrence, she went to the sacred abode of non-existence. His Majesty's loving heart was much affected by the fate of this wet nurse, and he expressed great sorrow. The body also was sent with much respect to Delhi, and His Majesty personally escorted it for some paces. All the state officers and the great ones of the sublime family pay the dues of respect and regret. In accordance with orders, a lofty building was erected over the tombs of Maham Anga and Adam Khan. This ended the petticoat government, and from that point on, Akbar ruled on his own. The Afghan Revolt Despite his military and diplomatic successes, Akbar still faced many threats. He appointed his lieutenant, Pir Muhammad, to be the governor of Malwa after Adam Khan, but Baz Bahadur returned with an army and drove Pir Muhammad out. He appointed his lieutenant, Pir Muhammad, to be the governor of Malwa after Adam Khan, but Baz Bahadur, that's the womanizing poet lover, returned with an army and drove Pir Muhammad out. Pir Muhammad drowned while trying to escape across a river. Akbar then sent another army, this time led by his general Abdullah Khan, who defeated Baz Bahadur. Baz Bahadur eventually submitted to Akbar and joined his court in 1570. The general Abdullah Khan was appointed governor of Malwa, but then revolted against Akbar. Akbar personally led an army down to Malwa to fight Abdullah Khan, who was chased out of Malwa and fled through Gujarat. He eventually ended up in Jampur and modern Uttar Pradesh, which had become a gathering place for anti-Mughal sentiment. Jampur was home to many rebels from Akbar's court and Uzbek nobles. These were the traditional enemies of the Mughals, as well as disgruntled Afghans from the defeated Suri dynasty. All of these Mughal enemies joined together and launched a revolt out of Jampur in 1565, declaring Kamran's son and Akbar's cousin, Abul Qasim, as their king. Just so we understand the family ties. Kamran was Humayun's half-brother. Humayun was Akbar's father. This meant Kamran was Akbar's paternal uncle, and Kamran's son was Akbar's paternal cousin. At the same time, Akbar's brother, Muhammad Hakim, who was the ruler of Kabul, invaded Punjab. Akbar is now caught between two enemies on two fronts, the Afghan rebels from Jaunpur in the east and Muhammad Hakim in the west. He decided to go west and deal with his brother in Punjab first. He defeated Hakim, who retreated back to Kabul and didn't cause any more problems for Akbar after that. Akbar then turned his attention east to deal with the rebel confederacy, leading a surprise attack on them at Munkawal, which is present-day Allahabad, in Uttar Pradesh, India. 
Akbar was victorious, executed his cousin Abu Qasim, and the rebellion died out by 1573. This rebellion, and quite frankly a lot of this story, takes place in Gujarat. Gujarat is a region on India's western coast. Before the Mughals, it was home to several different kingdoms and empires. In ancient times, Gujarat was part of the Indus Valley Civilization, which was one of the world's first big urban civilizations. In the medieval period, Gujarat was ruled by several Hindu and Muslim dynasties like the Solankis, the Vagelas, and the Muzaffarids. These dynasties left their mark on the region and many of the monuments and landmarks in Gujarat today come from that time. Gujarat has always been a major center of trade and culture. Gujarat is also known for its textiles, especially silk and cotton fabrics. Dealing with the Rajputs All the Muslim dynasties that ruled in India knew how powerful the Rajputs were. They were a proud people who had given the Muslim dynasties a whole lot of trouble over the years. The Rajputs are a Hindu warrior caste from northwestern India, especially Rajasthan. They have a long and interesting history and have been important in the history and culture of Rajasthan and the surrounding area. The Rajputs are known for being brave and skilled warriors with a strict code of honor. In the past, the Rajputs were famous for their fighting skills and their loyalty to their clans and rulers. They were often hired as soldiers and administrators by the different empires and kingdoms that ruled the region. The Rajputs are also famous for their fancy and ornate palaces and forts, which are still a major tourist attraction in Rajasthan today. The Rajputs have a strong sense of identity and pride, and they still play an important role in the culture and society of Rajasthan. Akbar wanted to subdue these Rajputs and came up with two different methods. The first method was through marriage. In 1562, Akbar married the daughter of Raja Barmal Kachwaha, the Hindu ruler of Ambar in modern western Rajasthan, later known as the Jaipur princely state. This was considered scandalous because Muslim men are only allowed to marry Muslims, Christians, and Jews. This Rajput princess was the first of many Hindus that Akbar would marry, usually for political purposes. These marriages brought him many Rajput allies. Akbar also abolished the jizya tax, which increased his popularity with his Hindu subjects. Like most Muslim kingdoms and empires of the past, the Mughals had a tax called jizya that they imposed on their non-Muslim subjects. This tax was one of the main sources of revenue for the Mughals, along with land taxes and trade duties. The jizya was collected from adult male, non-Muslims who were able to pay it. It was typically paid by Hindus, Buddhists, and Jains. The amount of jizya varied based on the person's wealth and status. Nonetheless, many non-Muslims saw it as a burden. The Mughals and other Muslim dynasties may have used the jizya tax to assert their dominance over non-Muslims and to promote Muslim superiority. But, 
It was also used to protect non-Muslim subjects and gave them certain rights. However, Akbar decided to get rid of the jizya in order to win support from his Hindu subjects and reduce conflict between Muslims and non-Muslims. Akbar would eventually have one of the largest harems with over 300 wives, some of whom came from as far away as Tibet. The total number of women in his harem was about 5,000. Just a brief word on the Mughal harem. The Mughal harem was usually under the control of either the queen mother or the chief consort. It was off limits to all men except for the emperor and certain male officials with special permission, like eunuchs. The harem played a significant role in the Mughal court as the women of the harem wielded a great deal of influence and power, particularly over the education and upbringing of the royal children. Akbar is also known to have had a number of children from his relationships with women in his harem. The women of Akbar's harem came from a variety of backgrounds, including Indian, European, Middle Eastern, and Central Asian. They were trained in a variety of skills, including music, poetry, dance, and they were known to be well-educated and cultured. John F. Richards provides a summary of the marriages between Akbar and the Rajputs in his book, The Mughal Empire. Both sides benefited from this arrangement. The Timurids won the loyalty of thousands of Rajput warriors generation after generation. The publicly proclaimed devotion of these prestigious chiefs had its impact on hundreds of lesser Rajput lineages who controlled localities across northern and central India. Akbar preempted the possibility of the rise of another Rajput coalition similar to that which his grandfather had faced at Kanwa in 1527. The Rajputs in turn placed themselves within a much wider political arena. Instead of being caught up in local internecine conflicts, they became imperial generals, statesmen, and high administrators. Instead of being content with the produce of the semi-arid lands of Rajasthan, they diverted streams of wealth from the largesse of the empire towards their homelands. Further reinforced by a powerful dynastic appeal, Akbar forged a political bond that would endure for nearly two centuries between Rajput and Mughal. Diplomacy in marriage was just one method Akbar used to reconcile the Rajputs. The other method was good old-fashioned violence. With the conquest of Malwa, the Mughal territory now bordered the Gondwana Kingdom, a Hindu kingdom located in central India. In 1564, Akbar ordered an invasion of the Gondwana Kingdom, and his general, Asaf Khan, led the campaign. The Gondwana Kingdom was ruled by a princess named Rani Durgawati, who was acting as a regent for her son. Rani Durgawati and her forces resisted the Mughals as best they could, but she was seriously injured in the battle. Knowing she was going to die soon, Rani Durgawati decided to kill herself instead of surrendering. Her son continued to fight, but he was eventually killed as well. That will end it for today's episode. We will continue our discussion of Akbar's war against the Rajputs in the next episode. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. 
You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you have an Apple device, you know, iPhone, iPad, or any Mac computer, open the Apple Podcast app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you prefer to use Spotify, simply open the Spotify app and, again, search for Islamic History Exclusive. You can also join by visiting patreon.com slash Islamic History. If you'd like to know what you'll be hearing on Islamic History Exclusive, just stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium series. Also, be sure to follow Islamic History Podcast on YouTube and TikTok for additional content. And finally, as always, special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Siroj for his research and support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to season two of the Umayyad Caliphate, presented by Islamic History Exclusive. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail, and this is episode 2 14. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Qutayba ibn Muslim, the Umayyad governor of Khorasan, is trying to consolidate his authority in Central Asia. Nizak, a Turkic ruler based in Central Asia, rebels against Qutayba. Caliph Walid ibn Abdul Malik orders Omar ibn Abdul Aziz, the governor of Medina, to make renovations to the Prophet's mosque. Out west, the Umayyads have begun the invasion of the Iberian Peninsula. And with that, let's begin discussing Nizak's perfidy. First, let's do a recap of Nizak's interactions with the Muslims so far. Nizak first came on the scene in 84 AH, that was episode 6 of this series, the second season of the Umayyad Caliphate. Nizak is, or he was, a pagan warlord who commanded a very powerful and strong fortress in the area of Badris, or Bactria as it was known in Greek. This region of Bactria is currently divided between the modern states of Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, and Tajikistan. If you have the opportunity, I would suggest looking at the borders of these three nations where they come together. You can see that it is a very complicated conversion of these three nations. Yazid ibn Muhallab, the previous former governor of Khorasan before Qutayba ibn Muslim, Yazid ibn Muhallab captured Nizak's fortress, and from that point on, Nizak was involved in an on-again, off-again war with the Umayyads. However, Qutayba and Nizak finally made peace in 87 AH. But three years later, after making that peace, Nizak threw off the Umayyad allegiance threw off his allegiance to Qutayba and rebelled against the Umayyads. 
Nizak's stated reason for doing this was that he felt certain that Kutaba would eventually go after his territory as well. And so Nizak left Kutaba. He was staying with Kutaba and Merv at the time. He left Kutaba, returned to his home territory in Badris and Bactria, and there he openly denounced Kutaba. And then he began sending messages and letters to other local Turkic rulers, asking them to join him in a campaign against Kutaba. Kutaba responded by rallying those local rulers who were still loyal to him, the various towns and cities and city-states in Khorasan that were still loyal to him. He rallied them to his side and asked them to join him in a campaign against Nizak as well. So by 91 AH, Nizak rebelled in 90 AH, and 91 AH, Kutaba began retaking and reconsolidating the cities that had joined in rebellion against him with Nizak. The first of these was a city, or really a town, called Marrud. It was just down the river from Merv, and it was led by a military commander, a pagan military commander. When this pagan military commander learned that Kutaba was leading an army down on him. The commander left the city, fled the city actually, but he left his family behind. Well, Kutaba eventually retook the city and then had two of the commander's sons killed. As we're going to see in this episode and perhaps the next episode, inshallah, we're going to see that Kutaba could be very rough with those who rebelled against him. He could be very unforgiving and merciless, really. We'll see that as we go along. From Marrud, Kutaba went on to Talakan, which is in modern-day Afghanistan. Talakan still exists today. It is about 145 miles north of the capital of Kabul. At this point in time, the time that we're speaking of right now, the local ruler of Talakan had rebelled against Kutaba, but... He changed his mind, evidently, and he resubmitted peacefully to Kutaba. There were some local rebels in Tolakan who resisted Kutaba, but they were defeated and executed. From Tolakan, Kutaba went on to Fadiyab, which is about 265 miles west of Kabul. Once again, the local ruler in this city changed his mind about the rebellion and submitted peacefully to Kutaba, and Kutaba did not harm or kill anyone in this city, and then he just went on to another city called Juzjan. As you can see, hopefully you can see, that many of these cities are really just city-states. Many of these local polities, these local states that Kutaba is reconsolidating and reconquering and reaffirming their allegiance, these are small city-states that probably propped up after the fall of the Sassanid dynasty, or maybe even before then, because the Sassanid dynasty was in a lot of chaos and flux before the Muslims came through and conquered them. 